Blog Talk Radio.
striking who made me and call this liberty. Things are running 
smoothly. And uh, I really appreciate the work that he does. And I also appreciate the work from <clears throat> Red Dot, uh, Chuck Leeming. Chuck has been uh, has been a, uh, a firestorm since he started with the program. The only thing that slowed him down was when he got shipped off overseas. But when he's back here in the States, he is always ready to do uh, any event, go anywhere, and... Uh, and he's just a, a huge asset to Appleseed in general and to Texas in particular. Uh, <clears throat> if you have a, a person in your crew that you would like to thank, and I, I, I don't even have to tell you that uh, or to ask you if you do, because I know that you do. Every single crew out there has somebody that uh, that is deserving thanks. I just saw two wolves. Uh, come into the chat. I want to thank him for the work that he does in Fredericksburg. He does a lot of work in Fredericksburg, uh, pushing the program there, getting uh, making sure that the events are set up and getting the the backers in place, uh, buying anything that needs to be bought for the for the shoots, and constantly uh, seventh stepping there. So I really appreciate the work that he does. Astronaut 03 has just come in, too. And Astronaut 03 is Paul Seeley. He does the work in Amarillo. And he basically is uh, just about a one-name crew. He's got his buddy Tom helping him there. But without uh, Paul and Amarillo, we wouldn't have a program there. And I really appreciate the work that he does and the level of professionalism he displays when he's doing the events. And... uh, and one last person real quick before uh, before you guys start calling in is Fit Stickler. You guys know Kirk. Uh, all of the graphics that uh, you see on on the Appleseed site, the majority of those have been ginned up by Kirk. He's worked nonstop uh, doing the, uh, the, the graphic stuff and doing things like newsletters uh, for uh, Texas and uh, running the uh, Texas Appleseed uh, Facebook pages and websites, and he does a fantastic job at it. All of these guys, without these guys, without the volunteers donating their time, then, then Appleseed, it just wouldn't run. And not a, nobody's getting a dime for this. Nobody's making a nickel off of it. But in fact, it's almost always the uh, the inverse, and that is people usually are paying a good deal amount out of their pockets to do this. <clears throat> And uh, giving up the giving up what could just as easily be uh, payable time on the weekends in order to run the events, and that's just on the weekend events. I'm not talking about the hours that are devoted during the rest of the week, because there's a substantial amount of hours donated by Appleseed volunteers during the week, and and if it was for anything else. If they weren't volunteering for it, then they would be making uh, probably a lot of money at it. So <clears throat> my thanks go out to our local Texas crew members. And what I'd like for you to do is to grab your phone and call in 347-308-8790, 347-308-8790, and call in and thank your local crew members. We do a great job of 
uh, of working them down into the dirt, riding the people hard and, and trying to get every bit of work out of them. Not because we have any evil intentions or are trying to be mean, but because we have an actual mission that we're trying to get accomplished. And and it takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of time. And 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 while we appreciate the work that everybody does, a lot of times, a lot of times there's uh, not a lot of thanks involved. And so what I'd like for you guys to do is start supplying the thanks for your local crews. All right, three four seven three zero eight eight seven nine zero. That's our number. All right. Uh, I just about have the guests uh, all lined up, almost, for the upcoming year. And uh, I'll start, I'll publish the the list. Uh, I can start publishing it uh, this next week uh, as it's coming out. Uh, But I'll tell you that that we will be having uh, in January... Uh, right now, we'll be having uh, Mr. Merriweather, uh, who is the publisher of the uh, Texas Foragers Handbook. He will be on the show on the 10th. And uh, this is in keeping with the with my philosophy of making sure that you guys are getting information <clears throat> about uh, self-reliance, about how to make sure that you're taking care of that you can take care of yourself in uh, in the event of uh, uh, of any kind of uh, emergencies or any type of cessation of services, etc. And it doesn't even have to be that because my philosophy has been that you should be living your life this way uh, in in your everyday life. I mean, if we try to talk to our grandparents about the idea of being a prepper, like, uh, hey, Grandma, Grandpa, I want to tell you that I've decided to start living my life in a way that if there was some type of a natural disaster or something like that or, or, or any kind of a of a cessation of services, then I'd be able to take care of myself. What do you think about that? And they would just look at you and they'd shake their heads and think, what has happened? What has happened to our, our nation in in just two short generations? that they've lost the ability to care for themselves. And I think it's very important that we as a nation, that we regain those skills and and develop these, these skills uh, and techniques that are needed to take care of ourselves uh, in the event that there's nobody else around to take care of us like we're supposed to do. And uh, Mr. Merriweather is, uh, is a, an authority on foraging, and when I say foraging, that means you know, being able to go out and uh, gather up uh, uh, native uh, and non-native in some cases, but gather up edible plants, and uh, and he's going to tell you, we're going to talk to you for a full two hours about how to do this, because like I said, you should be able, you should be doing this as part of your lifestyle so that you're not trying to learn everything in the last 24 hours before the comet hits or the 
listen to a storm comes or, or whatever happens. You should be living your living this lifestyle and taking advantage of the fact that there are there are hundreds and hundreds of plants all across the United States that you could be using to supplement uh, your your food on a daily basis, and uh, and it could be as easy as uh, you know we've got the story of uh, uh, Mother Baffert who's out uh, collecting. Uh, greens for her salad. Now, a lot of people try and make this an issue if she's so poor that all she can eat is grass. But that's not the case. The, the real thing is that this was a common practice. The common practice to go out and gather up the edible greens so that you you could eat those with your meals. Uh, there wasn't a uh, uh, an HEB or, or any other food store right down the street that they could go to the uh, the vegetable, the fruits and vegetables section and, and grab a head of lettuce or, or other greens and stuff like that. They had to make do. They had to make do with what they had. And this is a way for you to supplement uh, the food on your table. And I, I think it's a great way to do this because uh, there's really nothing that tastes better than than food that you have prepared yourself, right? If anybody asks you, do you want uh, you me to go and get you a, a bag of uh, uh, of s- cooked store spaghetti that was cooked up for me by Walmart, or do you want me to make a batch of my own homemade uh, spaghetti for you here? The answer is usually always going to be the homemade spaghetti, right? And it's the same with any other kind of meals that you cook. Usually homemade is usually better. And What's even better than that is getting all the ingredients yourself for these homemade dishes. So we're going to talk to you on the 10th about that. So I'm going to make sure that you mark that down in your calendar, January 10th, and uh, and be sure to listen because uh, I think it is something that you're all going to enjoy, and uh, it's not uh, it's not the Yule Gibbons thing of eating pine bark and stuff like that in uh, any emergency situations. This is a way to to find the, the the huge amount of good things to eat that uh, are growing around you uh, everywhere. Because not only does he talk about going through the woods and getting this stuff, but he's talking about uh, how even people in urban areas, even in cities, that uh, you can harvest uh, some of your uh, food there locally and the ways to do it. All right? So make sure you listen in then. <clears throat> that will be on the 10th. Uh, we've got Beth Schoenberg from the Common Sense Coalition. She's going to be in on the, uh, I believe it is the the 21st. Uh, don't worry, I'll put out the, the list between now and then. But uh, Beth is a, a great friend of Appleseed. She was, uh, she'll be on the 17th, January 17th. Beth is a great friend of, of Appleseed. She's been working and promoting Appleseed uh, ever since ever since uh, she heard of it. Uh, Sandy was a friend to uh, well, he is a friend to Beth Schoenberg, and uh, when she was on the Derry Brownfield show, and she was talking about Appleseed then. I believe she had. Uh, can be on a radio show. I was on a radio show, and then she's been a guest here a couple of times. And if you listen to the interviews that we do with Beth, 
they're absolutely amazing because she's as, as sharp as a razor. She has her ear uh, down on the ground listening to everything that's going on. She knows all of the stuff that's going on, and she's a, a true champion of uh, of rural Americans and the average American people. And uh, she'll be on on the 17th, and you guys will certainly enjoy that visit. And I believe that Sam put the uh, put her radio station address in here. Yes, yeah, she's she's got it right here. It's a uh, I just it just jumped out of my vision. Here it is. CSCTalkRadio.com. CSCTalkRadio.com. And uh, and she does uh, a great job on her radio stations. And uh, and puts up a lot of great information. And if you guys will listen to her, that'll be great. And we'll we'll also be asking you. She's doing this. Uh, she's doing the radio station on her own penny right now. Things are rough. We'll be talking to you about ways that you can help her uh, between now and then. But between now and then, go over to uh, CSCTalkRadio.com and listen to the radio show. It's got a downloadable uh, feature in it, so you can download it to your uh, iPod and take it with you and listen. That's what I do. Uh, I download her show. I download folks like uh, Jack Spierko and the Survival Podcast and a whole bunch of other folks. I always, I always have some type of educational talk radio in my ear. Uh, looks like uh, looks like I have lost. No, here we are. I'm back in. And it just looks like I had lost that my phone number had. Uh, just disappeared off of the switchboard too. Looks like you guys are having to log in and out a lot. I don't understand. I don't understand why that is happening. Uh, I see, like Bullet, uh, I see you logging in and out, and a lot of the other folks. Is that because it's freezing up on you? Is the chat room freezing up on you? Because uh, if it is, then I would like to talk to Blog Talk and find out find out why this is happening. You guys make sure that if you can, make sure that you're trying to run when you listen to the show and get on the uh, the chat. Try and run it off of the Mozilla platform instead of Windows. Windows and Blog Talk they hate each other. They don't get along at all. So try and download Mozilla and then run uh, run the chat and the radio show off of on Firefox. All right, that's going to be your best bet. And even then, I still have a problem myself too. But if you guys are having trouble in the chat room with it freezing up, be sure and let me know uh, what it's doing so I can file a uh, I can file a re- report on it to see if we can if we can get it fixed wherever it is. Okay, Kevin said that uh, running it off Google Chrome is just fine, and Bullet says it's freezing up. Uh, I noticed uh, this the last few weeks that uh, the folks are uh, are logging in and out a lot. I'll, I'll try and find out what's uh, what's causing that for you guys. <clears throat> and listen, uh, you guys that uh, are calling in, if you're calling in just to listen, that's fine. Uh, because uh, when Sam when Sam talks to you on uh, on the telephone line on the switchboard. He doesn't have you on air. He's got you off air. He's got you in a, you know, on a, 
uh, on a private off-air line. So if you want to call in, you just want to listen. If uh, if Sam opens up your 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 mic and and asks what you want to do, it's okay to answer. You don't have to hang up because uh, because you're not on the air. All right. I see that there's like three or four folks that uh, that have dropped the minute that that uh, that he opened their lines. Anyway. Uh, we'd like for you guys to call back in if you can. If you had something you want to say, we would like for you to call back in 347-308-8790. 347-308-8790. Because we would like for you guys to thank your local crews if that's what you're calling in about. And at the same time, if you have some event that's coming up and you'd like us to talk about it, then give us a call. We'll be glad to get you on the air and let you uh, talk about an upcoming event. And if you have any services that you would like to see about uh, offering to your Appleseed brothers and sisters, then please call in and do so. We'll be glad to let you uh, get your information out on the air. Uh, We're not taking any money for this. Uh, We're not uh, trying to get any advertising money or anything like that. We're doing it for the benefit of the Appleseed listeners, Appleseed brothers and sisters, because if there's something that an apple seed person can offer you, some service or product, and uh, if it's a product or service that you need, then why not get it from an apple seed brother and sister? Even if you're going to pay, uh, uh, you know, two cents a gallon more for it, it is better uh, to uh, to get it from your apple seed brother and sisters than uh, than from somebody you don't know. All right. On that note, we'll uh, mention that uh, Jimmy with Desert Eagle Farms in New Mexico, he's offering his uh, long-term frugal food, and he also has the Mill Dot Master. That's the uh, little uh, slide rule type device I was telling you about, about the size of a postcard, heavy cardboard, and uh, it will help you determine range. It will help you determine uh, uphill and downhill uh, shooting range also. And... uh, Either one of those things, you can get uh, in touch with him at uh, deserteaglefarms.myefood.com. All right? We'll be glad to help you out. Jimmy's also working with uh, christmasforourtroop.com. And uh, if you have uh, a service member who's serving overseas, if you will get the name of that service member, the name and the address, to Jimmy at Desert Eagle Farms, or you can go to you can get the information for ChristmasForOurTroops.com. You'll get that information to him, and he will put together a package and send it to the troops overseas. And listen, the the packages these guys are putting out have been a top of the line gear, top of the line stuff that uh, that they're getting from uh, manufacturers and. There's been nothing but uh, great uh, reviews and great thank yous for them. And you've heard uh, Jimmy and I talk before and everybody else who's been in the service that getting a package from home, getting a, from anywhere, getting a package or getting a letter means a great deal to those folks serving overseas, all right? So go by com, and if you have a, if you know of a, a service member that is serving overseas, you can submit that information to Jimmy and his crew, and they will try and get a package out to them. All right. 
I'm not sure what the deadline is for getting them there, but the sooner the better, right? Because uh, even if uh, even if uh, well, we we just want to make sure that that if they have the the stuff that they get it there in time uh, for the troops to get it by Christmas. All right. So make sure you stop by ChristmasForTroops.com and talk to them. Then we've got our friends, Tiles uh, Glock and Blue Feather. And Blue Feather and Tiles Glock both together make a handmade soap that they are offering uh, at uh, rock bottom prices, really. I think the bars of soap uh, that they were selling were only running about five bucks a piece. <laughs> and, uh, and that is for a quality handmade soap. Uh, made by your Appleseed brothers and sisters, which means you buy something from them, and uh, it can go directly into their gas tank and get them to another event. And you get the product. So everybody's happy. And uh, like I said, there's the soap that uh, Blue Feather makes, and Tyler Scott, too. I'm, I've never seen them at it, so I don't know which one is stirring the pot and which one is putting in the ingredients. But the soaps that they make are fantastic soaps that have a a, a great deal of uh, skin moisturizing oils in them, and it's perfect for winter time. I'm looking at my hands right now; they already look like they're like they're cracked pieces, and uh, and I'm out of soap. Toast, block, and blue feather. I'm out of soap; it's all gone. Uh, so, <clears throat> just saying. That's all. I'm just saying. <clears throat> anyway. Uh, if you will uh, Google uh, Blue Feather Soaps, then uh, you will find their contact information. And I'm sure they probably have a uh, catalog of stuff by now. But they make uh, hand soaps, face soaps, body soaps. They make a shaving soap. And uh, it is all done by them, by their by their four hands. And, uh, and they're great folks, too. All right? Great instructors, and uh, they've been with the program. Uh, they've been with the program for quite a while. It was one of the first groups that I went out and taught in, in New Mexico. That was the first group. I uh, went over to New Mexico, I guess, back in must have been 2008. It might have been 2007, but I, I, maybe it was 2007. And I <clears throat> stayed with uh, Blue Feather and Tiles Clock, and we had. Uh, I think there were five folks here, six folks. Uh, Tyler Scott, Blue Feather, Sandy, uh, I think Mike Schwartz was there, and and I can't think. There was a couple other folks, and I can't think of them right now. But they've been with the – Tyler Scott and Blue Feather have been with the program ever since uh, that first uh, IBC. And uh, they've been uh, – teaching pretty strong for the last few years. So uh, if you can get uh, a product from them, get them gas in their gas tank, then that's perfect. <clears throat> All right. Uh, let's see what we got here. Uh, All right. Sam says that the system is dropping the calls. Uh, let's try this again. One of you guys uh, call in to the station, and uh, and if you don't want to talk, we won't put you on the air. But I want to check and make sure that that it's the system that's dropping the calls, and not that it's uh, just folks saying, "Oh, we don't want to talk." 
So when you guys call in and uh, see if Sam can, uh, if he can get to you without the system dropping your call, okay? You do that so we can make sure we can make sure that the that there's not a glitch in the system because I can't. The only time I can check out the system is when we're doing a show. I can't. There's no way to go in and and see if something's wrong unless I'm actually running a show. So if one of you guys wouldn't mind calling in three four seven three zero eight eight seven nine zero and just talking to uh, Sam to make sure that uh, that it's a glitch in the system, I'll have to report that too. Because if there's stuff that uh, you guys want to get out, we want to get it on the air. <clears throat> All right. Uh, while you guys are checking that, then we're going to go ahead and uh, and start talking about the battles of December. Now, before we do that, I have one other response, one other uh, one other uh, commercial venture that we'd like to to get out, and that is. The Battle Road USA, end of the world as we know it, zombie destruction run. All right? That is uh, the event that our company, uh, Mr. Alonso Juan and myself, uh, I'm sure we've told you before that we have a company called Battle Road USA. And we specialize in uh, teaching individual survival, defensive shooting. And I'm not talking about survival as far as that you're going to go out and you're going to shoot a squirrel and eat it. What I'm talking about is how do you as an individual, not part of a team, how do you as an individual uh, survive a defensive shooting situation uh, in a uh, in a real-world type scenario? Because uh, a lot of places you go to, there are, there are people that are willing to train you, but a lot of times they're training you uh, – and the techniques that are designed for team use, like how uh, uh, like how officers respond to uh, a situation, or how uh, the military responds to a situation. You'd respond to that in their teaching situations. You're responding as part of a team, which is great if you have a team. But most of us don't have teams. Most of us just have ourselves and our family. We got a flashlight, and we've got the uh, uh, our firearm, and we have to know as individuals the best way, the most practical practical way to confront or deal with a situation and survive it. And that's what we're trying to teach at uh, our classes at BattleRoadUSA.com. And uh, we've had uh, about, uh, I think, six or seven courses so far this year. We just started, and uh, the all of the feedback so far has been really good. And uh, and normally we normally we don't do anything like the zombie destruction one, but we decided we wanted to go ahead and do it to try and uh, to get our name out into the public and also just to have some fun. Uh, I'm sure you've heard us talk. Uh, uh, once a one and myself have talked about things like the uh, the uh, Pecos Texas running gun in the sun and uh, what a uh, uh, what a fun event that was! Well, we're we're doing basically kind of the same thing ourselves. So, uh, if you will go to, let me see if I've got it right here. I'm going to put it into the 
into the chat room. Battle Road USA, E-O-T-W-A-W-K-I-Z-D, dot blogspot dot com. That's the Battle Road into the world as we know it, zombie destruction. <clears throat> and uh, you can get there just by Googling Battle Road USA, into the world as we know it, blogspot, and that should take you to it. And uh, that gives that. I'm trying to keep the uh, keep the blog current with uh, run information. We've got the uh, course of fire up there. We've got uh, I've got a bunch of uh, articles about different uh, uh, zombie destruction knives and hatchets and stuff like that, just for just for fun reading. But uh, we also have the uh, the course of fire for the event and stuff like that up. So if you want to take a, uh, a spin by there, the uh, Battle Road USA uh, Zombie Destruction Run blog spot, and I put the uh, I put the there we go. I didn't hit it. There it is now in the chat room. Uh, okay, we've got uh, a caller now. It seems like maybe that the maybe the system is working. We've got Sean who wants to talk, and Sean, welcome to the show. Well, howdy, and it's, uh, thank you for taking me on the call there. Well, uh, thank you for calling in. said you yes, have uh, a wife and six kids that have been to Appleseed? Yes, sir. Wow. I, have, I babysitted the small ones and let my, my women folk and my two boys old enough shoot. Uh-huh. Uh, I babysitted the two small ones. I have eight at home, and the two smaller ones weren't old enough, so I babysitted and allowed my my women folks and my younger boys to shoot that were old enough to shoot. Well, seven total did, Let me let me ask you first off is because I'm always curious about that is how did you find out about the, the Alpha Project? Well, you know we lived over uh, kind of in the middle of the state around the place called Clinton and we heard about it, but we didn't go and then we moved over toward Rosebud and uh, well I, I like shooting and I've taught all my children a little bit of the firearm safety and a few things and so. My daughters and uh, talked about it, and then I got on there and found out that there was one at, at uh, Bald Knob, and so we just decided to go to it and see what it would be like. Now, and what, we we loved this, it. Where is this? What state are you talking about? Okay, Bald Knob, Arkansas, is where we went to the shoot at. We're in Arkansas, still are in Arkansas. Okay. Uh, that and, shooting range at Bald Knob. Arkansas, that area, that's where we went to. And uh, let me ask you this now. Now, when you got when you got to the event and you you went through the event, was it was it what you thought it was going to be? Well, uh, I had no idea really what it would be like, but I can tell you it was very uh, educational for uh, my children and. It was, you know, maybe more than we thought it would be. We didn't know. We loved it very much. So we've been, you know, we've been twice. They had two there at Bald Knob, so we went to the second one, too, and we thought to go to the next one to have one there at Bald Knob. <laughs> and it was, uh, you know, we didn't want to think, although the children would get on the Internet, of course, and look at it and read some and try to learn what they could before they got there. Uh, so, What kind of a shooting background did uh, did your kids have before this? Have you been shooting with them very much? Well, not at ranges like that. We've never done that, okay? We do have a friend up in Missouri, uh, 
preacher friend of mine, and uh, we go to their place, and we would shoot at a range there somewhat, and it, it's very good shooting too, but it was a little different than this. So, uh, you know, the shooting, the assimilated targets and all, we hadn't quite done that. We did a few different things. Uh, but, it lear- you know, we, we learned very much from this, and all the young folks are still excited about it, and we still practice everything that they learned here at the house. Uh, I can't. I don't have a place to shoot much over 25 yards. That's very good in these old hills. And so right, we right. The real targets, yes, sir. Right, and you know what? You just mentioned one of the most important things that you can do, and that is you take the the skills and the techniques that you learn at an event, and then you practice them at home. Because if you wait to try and do it just by going out to the range, you're going to be behind the ball because the shooting skills are no different than than any other type of skills. If you played basketball, if you played football, if you only waited to go and play at the game once a month, then you're not going to be playing at the at the height of your skills and abilities. You've got to have some rehearsals, you know. You've got to have some rehearsals yes. during the month, and you have to do that at home. And you can yes, do that. You, know, you can do that without even shooting, you know. You can that's practice true. getting into positions. You can do dry fire and stuff like that's that. That's right, and and that's some things they kind of taught us to dry firing. And you know, to get your natural point of aim is very important. And going from there, you know, you learn to sit in different positions, but and then learn to to lay prone and all that. And the, we practice that quite often now. All my children do, and uh, you know, a week doesn't go by that we don't do a little practicing on that. And you know, we read our Bibles, we believe in God, we believe in guts, and we believe in guns in that order, and uh, we we enjoy firearms right. and the safety of them and all the rest of it. And that's what that's what folks should be doing, and so many aren't. I don't know if you heard the beginning of the show I was talking about. Uh, we've got a guest coming up that's going to be talking in uh, January, January 10th. We've got uh, uh, Mr. Merriweather, who is... Uh, uh, who's authored a book on foraging, and how to get, uh, out of, uh, you know, get the edible wild foods and plants and stuff like that. And uh, and I was talking about how if we would have, or if we would even today, you know, if you have a grandparents are alive, if you went to them and you told them, hey, listen, I'm gonna I'm gonna do this new thing. It's called prepping, and what that is is. It's like making sure that I have enough groceries and and water and stuff that I could survive if you know if there yeah. was a snowstorm for three or four days or something like that. And you know your grandparents would look at you and just go, "Oh my lord, what, what has happened? That they think this is some new thing that they should be proud of because for them that was a way of life. You know, for most, uh, right. not for everybody, but for most it was. And yeah. we have forgotten that." It's only in the last two generations we've forgotten that. Same thing with shooting. That's and, right. Uh, right. And and when I grew up, it was uh, everybody did it. I mean, yeah. all of all of my friends, all the girls even that I knew, all of them shot. They all shot. Everybody, everybody, even if they didn't all hunt, and most of them did, they yeah. all still shot. Now today, I still live rurally, and uh, the kids. They go to school with my with my kids. The majority of them have never ever touched a uh, 
a rifle. They wouldn't know what to do with it, and they wouldn't know how to how to be safe around one. So in just yeah. a, a few short years, we have lost most of the skills that we need to take care of ourselves. And it's good to hear that you are that the way that you are raising your family, that you're helping to put keep those skills alive uh, with your children. We're, we're we're trying to. Those are important skills, and I'll tell you, in in your life, you go through life, and, and a gun is a is a good tool. You can get food with it, and there is protection with it. And plus, it's fun to just shoot targets and all that stuff. And uh, uh, it would be nice, you know. Uh, we homeschool, uh, and we're glad to do that. But uh, you know, the the every state ought to get in there and start having a good. Uh, gun teaching class in every public school. It would be good for them to have that. And if they want to have a sports program, let them have something that will stick with them the rest of their life. I'm all for it, but uh, I can tell you right now that that there's almost no school. Now, there are are a few schools, because people have have called in and talked to us about that, saying that they've got a school that uh, does have like a shooting program or something. The majority of schools, you even mentioned any kind of a firearm or something, and they start yes, they start freaking out. Even though, like right here where I'm at, of course we homeschool, but the little schools around me, all the the boys, they all deer hunting that type stuff. And uh, uh, I guess our our representatives need to try to get a bill passed. <laughs> well, we can't. It, that's one of the things that that we talk about on the show here a lot too, and that is. If we're waiting for if you're waiting for your representatives to do it, you're going to be waiting yeah. a long time. Well, you're right. The way to do uh, stuff is for us to do it. Is for us to go out yes, and get out there right. and do it ourselves because we can't depend on our representatives to represent us. Uh, all we can depend on them That's to right. do is to make sure that their feather beds are are nice and cozy and comfy and stuffed with feathers. Uh, anything that's going to have to be done as far as safeguarding the freedoms and liberties that we enjoy by virtue of living in this nation, we're going to have to do ourselves. Yes, and uh, that reminds that means me we're going, to, we're going to have to put the spear, put the points on the right. spears ourselves and you, do it. You are right. And uh, I have ten children, two are married, and the two married ones, they shoot, their husbands shoot. And uh, it's a, I like to tell you it's one of my First Amendment rights. And the Second Amendment, of course, is there. But, you know, I, I'm a religious man. And... Uh, King David had a rock, had a sword, and if I needed to protect myself, I got a gun. And uh, he can uh, he can help me to aim. And like I said, if I get hungry, I can shoot a squirrel or whatever, something like that. You are right. Well, like you said, it's 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 a tool. It's it a is. tool that everybody should uh, should be able to use confidently. No different than uh, well, it is different. I'm not going to say it's the same as a as a fire extinguisher or anything else, but my gosh, if we teach uh, if we teach our kids to use a fire extinguisher, then we should teach them to use a rifle. If we teach yes, them to sir. use to do yes, CPR, uh, from the we beginning teach them of this to do nation, a rifle. That's right. From the beginning of this nation, they had guns. We understand that. And you know, uh, of course, I'm always talking about religion. There's a book called Chaplains and Clergy of the Revolution. If you haven't read the book, you should get it and read it. You can get it on the Internet. And it will show you that uh, all the chaplains, all the clergy, all the pastors fought for freedom. And, uh, you know, we want to keep our country free, 
now. And if I don't stand up, teach my children, and other men don't teach theirs, uh, if you don't fight for the Bill of Rights and fight for your freedom, you will lose it. Right. Learn, Unless you were learn, talking about homeschooling. Stand for it. Yes, sir. They fought in the revolution, which is another thing those schools are so weak on. I wasn't taught much about my forefathers, my founding fathers, in uh, – History at school, I heard a little bit about George Washington and Patrick Henry, and that's good. But there are many other uh, histories out there of men who uh, gave us our freedom. Oh, absolutely. And that's one of the things that we do talk about at uh, at events. And yes, sir. Uh, we do talk to the folks about the history. They and do. They I do a good job at that, You're right. Yeah, that, that we're, we're going to talk to you about one specific day in our nation's history. Yes, I try to remind them that that's that's not all there is. There's not just one day in our history. There's a complete unbroken line of patriots who have uh, who have stood together in ranks and defended our nation uh, in our nation and outside of the nation, and have uh, even laid down their lives in defense of our freedoms and liberties. That is exactly right. One of the most important things you can do to to there's no way to, to 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 break even this thing. There's no way to make it even to make it right because we owe those people, all of those people who came before us, we owe them a huge debt. We do uh, because for for what they have yes. done, and there, there is no way to, to even out the scales. There's no way to make it right. The only thing we can do is to honor them. And yes. how are we going to honor them? That's by remembering them. That's the only That's way right. we can that we can honor them is by remembering them. And that's what we try and, and get across to folks at the at Apple Seeds is that we want you to remember these people. We want you to know their names. We want you to, to know what they did. We want you to know about the sacrifices that they made so that you could have the nation that you have today. And the way that you do that, the way that you honor them is to remember them, yes, to, to learn about them, and then to tell other people about them. And that's one of the whole things that we do uh, here at Appleseed. That's right. Yes, sir. Uh, the the Appleseed we went to, they would uh, we would stop and they would have a little teaching on some of the founding fathers or some of the men that were in the revolution, and it's always good. It's it's always been good. Well, I was going to say uh, a little while ago, you mentioned that that you were homeschooling your kids, and yes. I want to tell you that uh, one of our instructors, Bullet, and we're lucky to have Bullet here in Texas. She was uh, uh, homeschooled, and she, you know, she came out of a, uh, a I guess, a big, uh, pretty big homeschool community. Because every time she comes to an apple seed, she's dragging another carload of uh, homeschooler friends with her. Yes. But she's posted on here that there is an apple seed uh, homeschoolers Facebook page, and I don't know how much you guys uh, apple do on the computer. Homeschoolers Facebook page. Yeah, we'll check it, into uh, it. I, I mean, it might be something that my, my children might know about it because they uh, search sometimes, and I'll ask them, and we'll look it up, though. And okay. I'll want you to just go to uh, you go to the Facebook page and uh, type in Appleseed Homeschoolers. Oh, it just changed. Hold on. Appleseed Homeschoolers. So it would be Facebook.com backslash Appleseed Homeschoolers. They can probably, they can probably show you how. I depend on my kids to show me that stuff too. Right. I don't really know how to negotiate that. 
the technical area, but they can show me how. Anyway, sure. that uh, that's from Bullet. She said they've got a new uh, Facebook homeschoolers page, and uh, and we have a we've got a great uh, a great experience that we've had over the last few years with homeschoolers who come to Appleseed because uh, they are yeah. uh, they're usually the sharpest uh, pencils in the drawer and uh, very respectful. Uh, they. Uh, they mind their P's and Q's, they have good manners, and they listen to the instruction, and then they almost always do well because because they've been taught how to learn correctly uh, at home, whereas the public schools have, have a horrible track record of this. And I'm not going to say that every, homes, every homeschooler group is great. Right. I'm saying in my experience that the homeschoolers have, uh, have always been very respectful and have always been uh, very... Uh, willing and able to learn. So yes, sir. well, sure, and uh, that's why we do homeschool, and we want to teach our children just the things you mentioned there. And you know, we can also teach them a lot more history in some areas of our nation than what they would ever get, you know, at the public schools. Right. Well, we want them to know that history. Uh, and that's why we love the apple seed also, and and go there for the history part and for the. The, the what we can get out of it and what we learn from it. It's very good. We do well, encourage other people that. to come to it. Uh, we passed out flowers around this area where we're at and uh, invited folks that we know. Uh, you know, and that's great, too, because uh, I imagine you live rurally, don't you? Yes, sir, I do. I live out in the country, sure. Okay. And what you want is you want, uh, and I'm sure that to a good degree you already have this, but... Uh, because I, I know a lot of folks in, in, in Arkansas, and most of the folks I've, I've known in Arkansas have, have uh, had no trouble handling a rifle. Uh, no. right. But uh, you want your neighbors, uh, all the people in your community, you want them to be able to competently use their uh, firearms if needed be. That's true. And, uh, That's right. So you Does want it? to get the get them to get their get together with their families and go to an apple seed and learn yeah. how to handle the rifle. And one of the things that I always that we we usually don't push as much and that is that Appleseed is a great place to teach your kids about rifle safety. Yes. Because we have right. a we've got a pretty hardcore rifle safety program that we run. It is. And uh, we, we appreciate it's it. A, it yeah, it does we do a, I think we do a great job on teaching that. So you want your kids and your friends' kids and your neighbors' kids, you want them to understand about rifle safety so that they know how to safely handle a rifle, even if you're not standing there watching them, which you should be which you should be doing when we put this disclaimer in, you should be doing if they are minors, you should be watching them anytime yes. that they're handling a firearm. Sure, but, they need supervision, yes. But this is a, a good program to teach them rifle safety. Well listen, I really Sean, I appreciate you calling in and uh when you go to your next Apple, oh, you don't even have to wait for that. You can call in any time you want, but for sure give me a call after you go to your next event, okay? We'll do it. Yes, sir. It's good. And I really appreciate you, you calling in. Anything else you want to get out to folks? Uh, what I was wanting to do here is, uh, if it's okay, I wanted to call out the names of our uh, Appleseed folks that were in charge. Is that all right if I give their names out a little That's- bit? Perfect. That's, now, exactly it's, what we're, it's, that's exactly what we want to do. Uh, it's a bunch of nicknames, but if they're listening tonight, they're going to know that we know who they are still. We didn't forget until we see them again, maybe. Uh, we had Mother Gobbler, Um Daddy, 
Smiler, Quinn Cannon, and Professor G. Hornet 41, one shot, one hoe. He's probably listening. And prone to knit. And then we had Creighton and Sig Epp. And this was uh, in Arkansas? These are folks, well, they were our teachers, orange hats and and red hats. But actually, some of those weren't from Arkansas. Uh, and I hope I don't think he would mind saying this. Uh, one shot, one hole uh, came all the way from Colorado. And we had a very good time with him and his wife. Right, right. I was going to say, I know uh, Jim and Kim. And, yes. Uh, I just didn't expect him to be in uh, in Arkansas, but I'm, he was I'm way down there in the flatlands at Bald Knob, Arkansas. Sure enough. Yeah, listen, then you got a treat because uh, they are some uh, top-notch instructors, and uh, and yes. and I'm yes, really we, uh, we learned a lot from them. They were we we enjoyed uh, their teaching and everything. And uh, the the only other person I didn't mention, he's the I think he's one of the owners of the vets. Uh, shooting range uh, for anybody that's listening from Arkansas that would like to come to a good place to shoot if they need a place is Patrick McCarty. And uh, okay, so that was uh, some of our teachers there. Well, I really appreciate them. Uh, I really appreciate them going down to Arkansas to do that, and uh, and I yes, appreciate sir. you taking your family and going and then taking the time to call in because, uh, like I said, we. At Appleseed, we we usually get every last penny, every last drop of blood, every last minute that we can get from our instructors. And uh, yes, sir. And very seldom do we ever tell them thanks. But usually the folks at the events do. But I want to make sure that uh, that we spend some time doing that. So that's what I try and do at the they, beginning of the show. They were very good. We learned a lot from them. They were professional and they were courteous and they were good folks. And and they were stern. You know, they would. Make sure that you learn the safety rules. It was it was good for everyone there. All right. Well, Mr. Sean, thank you very much. Be sure and call in. Thank whenever you, you, sir. Go to your next event. And well, you're welcome to call in anytime. You're always welcome okay. on the show. Thank you. All right. Thank you. God bless you and uh, you. your tribe. Take care of them, and uh, we'll talk <laughs> yeah. to you soon. Bye. Bye bye. Well, it's nice to hear, and uh, I I want to ask you my. Uh, if he was sure that that's who it was, because I knew that Jimmy Kim were there in Colorado, for them to go to Arkansas was uh, was a pretty nice little trip, and uh, and I appreciate them doing that. Uh, and then remember what uh, I read a while ago that uh, if you guys have uh, uh, if you have kids and that you're homeschooling, or you know somebody that does, then get the link to them. It is. Uh, www.facebook.com backslash Appleseed Homeschoolers. All right? Go swing by there, take a look at that page, and uh, see what they have to offer because Appleseed and homeschooling uh, were pretty much, uh, you know, made to fit as far as uh, the partnership. So be sure and take a look at uh, that page. And then I also encourage you as uh, as part of your seven-stepping program to uh, – Whatever state you're in, if you're in Texas here, you Google Texas Homeschoolers and uh, find uh, find out how you can contact them and then, then offer the program to them. Explain what we do, uh, 
uh, how we do it and why we do it and uh, try and get some of them on the line because that's what we're that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to teach folks and especially the youth of America uh about the about firearm safety and about uh the fundamentals of rifle marksmanship and to make sure that the youth of this nation understand that uh that this is part of a god given right that uh that we have to defend ourselves to possess firearms and defend ourselves with them because one of these days those kids are going to be 18 and they're going to be legal voters. And if they've never touched a firearm before, then they have no dog in that hunt. Uh, somebody having a firearm, not having that one, is, is neither in nor there to them. And we can't allow that to happen. <clears throat> All right. <clears throat> Let's start off... Uh, talking about, uh, we're going to talk about the battles of December. Like I said, there were a lot of battles fought in the month of December uh, throughout the eight long and bloody years of the American Revolutionary War. And uh, like I said, it is, uh, it's a whole different thing when you talk about a battle being fought in December. When you talk about it in December, and if you talk about it in a nice, uh, comfy, cozy April or uh, or June or July or something like that, because December, especially in the Northeast, which is where the majority of the battles were fought, at least in the beginning, uh, is a very cold time of year. And even in the South, whenever it gets down to uh, the the 40s and the 30s, uh, when you're used to uh, 100 degrees, 30 degrees is a 70-degree drop, it's pretty cold. And we're talking about back in the days where there was no uh, no Gore-Tex, no plastic, uh, no rain suits. I mean, you had, uh, uh, sometimes you had uh, oil-soaked canvas and stuff like that to try and keep you dry. But I don't care who you are, if you are in the rain soaking wet at uh, 45 or 50 degrees, you are cold. It's cold. It's painfully cold. And uh, and these guys work. All right? So we'll start off uh, in 1774, the, uh, before the events that happened in April. The first thing we had was the powder Alarms and those began in September in '74, and uh, that eventually uh, brought us into the battles of 1775. <clears throat> and we'll go through a, a quick list of those. And that is, uh, you have Lexington and Concord on April 19th. You have the siege of Boston, which began on April 19th and ran all the way until March 17th, 11 months later. The gunpowder incident on April 20th, the capture of Fort Ticonderoga on May 10th, Battle of Chelsea Creek, May 27th and 28th, the Battle of Machias, June 11th and 12th, the Battle of Bunker Hill, June 17th. That's also known as the Battle of Breed Hill because 
that was the actual hill that they fought off of, was Breedville. Uh, the Battle of Gloucester, uh, August 8th. The shelling of Stonington on the August 30th. The siege of Fort Jean on September 17th. Uh, and that went from September 17th to November 3rd. It's also called the Battle of St. John's. The burning of Falmouth on October 18th. That's the, the burning of Falmouth, the town of Falmouth. The Battle of Kim's Landing on November 14th. Then we began in November with the Battle of Great Bridge. <clears throat> and uh, that was on December 9th. <clears throat> and, uh, <clears throat> pardon me. The Battle of Great Bridge, uh, the Battle of Great Bridge, uh, began on December 9th in 1735. And this is in the, the uh, right in the local area of Great Bridge, Virginia, and it's right there in the beginning of the American Revolutionary War in the first year of it. And uh, this was a battle fought between the uh, the the militia forces, uh, and a lot of times they use they intersperse the colonial army and militia forces using it using either word to describe it. And and it is true and it's not true. For number one, the the actual Continental Army itself took a while for it to to be put together. So almost all the battles were fought. Uh, for the first uh, couple of years, by the individual state militias, or, the, or by the, the the militias of the colonies, and uh, this first battle of Great Bridge began when the uh, in early in 1775, you know, right after uh, uh, Lexington conquered, and you have the loyalists who are loyal to the king, and you have the colonists. Who were siding with the with the uh, I guess you would call them the the rebels, developing a great deal of tension, and uh, both Lord Dunmore, who was in charge of this area, and the rebellious Whig leaders recruited troops, and they they engaged in a in a struggle both armed and unarmed, for the available military supplies in the area. Now, the the struggle eventually uh, focused itself and came to a point uh, on Norfolk. And uh, what happened is Dunmore had he'd taken refuge above, uh, aboard a Royal Navy vessel. Dunmore was afraid that he would be caught on land, so he'd taken it himself and his family and put them aboard a Royal Navy vessel. Now, Lord Dunmore's forces, they'd fortified one side of a critical river crossing, of a bridge there south of Norfolk uh, at the town of Great Bridge. It was called Great Bridge because that's, there was a bridge across the river there. And the Whig forces were occupying the other side. Now, in an attempt to break up the, the Whig gathering, because uh, it was one of those battles that, that didn't start all at once. There were loyalists on one side of the bridge that were gathering and starting to fortify. He had Whigs on the other side that were gathering and starting to fortify. Dunmore ordered an attack by the Whigs and uh, uh, and some of the local, uh, some of the British regular forces are local. And uh, also the, uh, 
groups of freed slaves that had been organized into uh, into uh, let's see what would you call it? It was it was uh, they were under the uh, under the orders of the king, and he sent them uh, attacking across the bridge to try and take the bridge. Now, this is one of the uh, one of the battles that you can take a look at it and take further reading of, where you can see that rifle marksmanship came into good effect here, because there was a company of riflemen attached to the uh, uh, to the militia side, and uh, those guys uh, caused some serious damage out at distance whenever Dunmore's men tried to cross the bridge and retake it. <clears throat> Well, they didn't. They couldn't take the bridge. They were repulsed, and the uh, Dunmore's forces lost approximately uh, 55 to 65 killed. Uh, There's some reports that the the list of uh, killed went up to 102, Uh, but that may be just because he was only reporting the list of actual uh, uh, regular soldiers that were killed. He wasn't counting the Loyalist volunteers or the black uh, uh, troops that were fighting for the king. <clears throat> they were repulsed and uh, and finally had to leave the area there because shortly thereafter, uh, Norfolk, which was at the time uh, pretty much of a, a Tory or loyal center, was abandoned by Dunmore and the Tories who all eventually fled on Navy ship, uh, fled to their Navy ships in the harbor and then eventually sailed out. The Whig-occupied section of Norfolk uh, was destroyed on January 1st, 1776, in an action which had actually been begun by Dunmore but was completed by the Whig forces. They uh, pretty much destroyed the the center of Norfolk, which was the, the Tory uh, stronghold, and forced uh, Dunmore and his folks to leave. Now, well, you won't hear about it tonight, but you'll eventually hear more about Dunmore uh, as the war goes on. Uh, also at this time, on December 13, 1775, Congress appointed Silas Dean, John Langdon, and Christopher Gadsden to fit out two vessels of war, and they ordered 13 vessels of war built and appointed uh, Isaac Hopkins commander of what was to become the beginning of the role of the, uh, not the role, the beginning of the colonial navy. Okay, so this is the beginning of the colonial navy. And the way it began uh, was with uh, with giving out letters uh, to uh, to ships to become privateers. And these are vessels that that fought on the side of the colonists, and they're, what they did, they went out and they would capture uh, English uh, supply ships, mainly supply ships, because the colonists didn't have any at this time, did not have any real uh, ships of the line for war. So they couldn't go toe to toe with the British uh, Navy ships of the line because they would they would be destroyed because the Great Britain had the the largest naval fleet on the sea at that time. But what they could do is they could begin attacking the supply lines. They could be harassing the uh, the 
British supply lines and taking them. And what they would do is they would take their ships, they would confiscate them, and then they would sell the uh, the goods that they had taken and get the money for that. And that is that fueled uh, a great deal of, uh, of of privateer operations at the beginning of the nation's history. And they be, be, they began preying on the British supply lines. Uh, also in December, there were the British vessels that were at anchor in Charleston Harbor and were driven from the harbor by artillery by an artillery company under Colonel Moultrie, stationed on Hadros Point. Then on December 23rd, 1775, the Snow Campaign. Now the Snow Campaign was one of the first really major military operations of the American Revolutionary War in the southern colonies. And, you know, I talked at the beginning of the show about the the cold and weather and stuff in the northeast where um, a lot of the battles were were fought. But we have to remember that the a great deal of the war was fought and won in the south. And uh, the Snow Campaign was one of the first uh, military operations, the major ones, it was fought in the South. This was an army of uh, around 3,000 Patriot militias. They were under the command of Colonel Richard Richardson. What they did is they began a march uh, through South Carolina, and they began uh, attacking, and, and a lot of, all of it wasn't attacked. They weren't uh, like shooting and, and bombing and destroying every every place. But what they were doing is they were boldly going through all of the loyalist recruiting areas in South Carolina and making it known that they were forced to be reckoned with. They were flushing the uh, the loyalists out, and there were frustrating attempts by the loyalists to to recruit loyalist fighters and uh, organize them. And this expedition became known as the Snow Campaign due to the heavy snowfall in the later stages of the campaign. So here we are in South Carolina and uh, it's December and they're marching through the snow uh, to disrupt the recruitment and organization of loyalist uh, militias there in the South. All right, now we come to December 31st, 1775. And we have one of the uh, one of the first large campaigns uh, in this area, and that was where Washington, uh, it wasn't Washington at the time, I believe it was just Congress, had given Arnold a charter to attack into Canada, to attack Quebec, and try and take the city of Quebec from the British. And we've talked about this a couple of times before, because I told you this is one of the it's one of the more obscure battles of the American Revolutionary War, and yet, if you read about it, I don't know how you could be anything other than uh, than really awestruck by by the amount of effort that was put forth by these folks. And uh, and remember, and you know, they're starting off late in the year, and they had already started off, uh, I believe, at the end of October or mid-October, heading up to Canada 
to, to attack Quebec. And the way they did it, there were no roads to get up there. And the way they did it was by going upstream, by going up the rivers and their canoes and their rafts. And like I said, it is going upstream. There's no outboard motors. There's no way for them to uh, to do this other than uh, rowing and poling. And in a great number of places, they had to uh, have everyone get out of the boats, tie ropes to them, and pull them upstream. They would do this until they came to rapids or to falls. If you've ever been up in this area and you've you've you have been around the streams and rivers uh, up in the northeast, it's no different than anywhere else really, other than you have a great deal of changes in elevation. And when you have that, uh, in a lot of places, the changes in elevation are abrupt. I mean, you've got uh, waterfalls or you have rapids that are not uh, navigable by keeping the boat or the raft in the water. I mean, if you would have to take the the boat, uh, bring it on shore, unload it, carry the supplies up past the rapids or past the cliff, and some of these cliffs might be hundreds and hundreds of feet. Uh, you have to climb, bring all the supplies up, then you go back and get the boat, uh, if it was small enough to be carried in one part, you could carry it like that. If not, it had to be disassembled and carried in pieces up above the rapids of the cliffs, uh, above the waterfalls, and then put back together and then continue to be dragged uh, upstream. And I'll have to I'll have to look up the the distance uh, and, and and let you guys know how far it was, but. It was hundreds and hundreds of miles, and this is in winter. So they're slogging up and down the the these rivers in winter, dragging all their stuff up there so that they can attack the town of Quebec in winter. And uh, the battle itself was was not much of a battle. Uh, But the the actual expedition to get there is absolutely amazing. <clears throat> and uh, they attacked Quebec, and even though there were not that many defenders at Quebec, they attacked in the middle of a snowstorm, and they immediately uh, lost uh, the, the general, the commanding general there, uh, right in some of the first uh, actions, uh, I believe, right as they were starting to uh, to attack the fort, one of the first uh, cannons that were set off with grape shot killed the uh, commanding general. Eventually, <clears throat> they had to retreat, and the majority of the folks were captured. Uh, the uh, Morgan and his riflemen were captured. Uh, uh, as was uh, uh, Benedict Arnold uh, was captured, and uh, it was pretty much of a defeat uh, for the for the colonial forces. And 
I'm just so amazed that that it actually got to that point. You know, they were uh, the attack was in a uh, a two pronged attack on Quebec. So you have these two groups of uh, of colonial forces going by different routes, arriving at the city, and uh, and then beginning the attack in the middle of a a severe uh, blinding snowstorm. And uh, like I said, it, it, right at the beginning, as uh, as soon as they were converging uh, in the lower city to scale the initial walls that were protecting the upper city, you know, you usually you have uh, uh, you'll have a, a center section of the city that is more protected than the outer section, but the outer section will have usually a lower walled area. <clears throat> anyway, they're getting ready to attack the lower wall area. Uh, Montgomery uh, was killed, like I said, by grape shot right there at the beginning of the battle. Arnold's force did penetrate into the lower city, but uh, Arnold himself was shot. He was shot in the thigh, and uh, I believe it actually broke the uh, broke his leg, and uh, then Morgan took over to lead the assault in Arnold's place, and he became trapped in the lower city, and they were forced to surrender. And uh, they, uh, Arnold was able to uh, to make his escape, and Arnold and the rest of the, uh, the Americans, they did maintain uh, a semi-effective blockade of the city until spring when the British reinforcements arrived. It wasn't that... They really... Uh, it, in all truth, they really didn't do much. <clears throat> but uh, the battles that occurred after that, we've talked about several times, and that was uh, that was where uh, I've told you many times before about uh, Arnold and uh, how he built a complete navy uh, right there in the middle of the woods on uh, on the lake in order to uh, fight a. Uh, to to establish a fighting retreat back into America. All right. Uh, on December 8th in 1776, now there were uh, the battles in 76. I'll just read them off real quick to you as we go along. We have the burning of Norfolk on January 1st, the Battle of Moore Creek Bridge on February 27th, the Battle of the Rice Boats, March 2nd and 3rd. The Battle of Nassau, March 3rd and 4th. The Fortification of Dorchester Heights on March 4th. Battle of St. Pierre, March 25th. Battle of Block Island, April 6th. Now, you guys know what the Fortification of Dorchester Heights is on March 4th, right? <clears throat> that is what ended the siege of, uh, of Boston. Whenever uh, uh, Knox proposed the idea of going to Ticonderoga, Ticonderoga in the middle of winter and bringing all the cannon back to Boston in the middle of winter, and we're talking about cannon weighing uh, 10 tons uh, in some cases, and uh, bringing them back in the middle of winter, crossing a lot of rivers with them, 
crossing rivers and having the ice break and the cannon fall into the bottom of the river and them building gear to retrieve it from the bottom of the winter frozen stream and then putting it in place in Dorchester Heights and causing the uh, the British to leave uh, and abandon Boston. And uh, that's just one of the the many battles of 76. The Battle of St. Pierre, March 25th. The Battle of Block Island, April 6th. Battle of the Cedars, May 18th to the 27th. The Battle of Troy Rivière, June 8th. The Battle of Sullivan's Island, June 28th. Battle of Turtle Gut Inlet. <laughs> the Battle of Turtle Gut Inlet, June 29th. Battle of Lindley's Fort, July 15th. The Battle of Long Island on August 27th. That's also known as the Battle of Brooklyn. The landing at Kipps Bay, September 15th. The Battle of Harlem Heights, September 16th. The Battle of Valcour Island, October 11th. That's one of the naval battles that I was telling you about. The Battle of White Plains, October 28th. The Battle of Fort Cumberland, November 10th and 29th. The Battle of Fort Washington, November 16th. <clears throat> okay. Those are the battles. The uh, the last few battles there, the Battle of Long Island, Kipps Bay, Harlem Heights, Valcour. Valcour, not Valcour Island. That was, that was a completely different one. The Battle of White Plains, Fort Cumberland, and Fort Washington. Those are all the battles that uh, forced Washington and his troops <clears throat> to uh, abandon uh, New York and New Jersey and retreat across the Delaware. All right? That brings us to the ambush of Geary on December 14th. Uh, on December 8th, Washington, with all of his forces, crossed the Delaware into Pennsylvania. He was looking for some way to keep the British forces from maneuvering into a position where they could trap him and crush his army. Because Washington himself was more than willing to continue to retreat until he went across uh, the mountains into, into the central United States. One thing that the British never understood was the enormity of North America. They had no idea on how large the country was. No idea. They didn't, they, they never understood how large the nation was. And Washington, being a surveyor, had been through a lot of the country, and he knew how far it was. He knew that uh, there was not going to be any real way for them ever to run down the army and and capture it or to defend such a large uh, area as the northeastern United States. Anyway, Washington put the Delaware River between himself. He went into Pennsylvania and put the Delaware River between himself and the British regulars and was making a fortified stand there. Now, that brought it into the the end of the fighting, or so the British thought, and they started going into their winter camps. Uh, on December 8th, 
1776, also Sir Peter Parker, takes possession of Rhode Island and blockades the American fleet at Providence. On December 12, 1776, Major General Charles Lee was captured by the British at Basking Ridge, New Jersey. And uh, and some folks say this was a blessing in disguise that uh, Lee was taken out of the equation and that allowed uh, Washington uh, to to become to be become less fettered by other ideas of how the war should be run. Um, that brings us to the ambush of Geary on December 14th. Now this was a this was a skirmish, really. It wasn't a a, uh, a protracted battle or even a a major battle. It was mainly just a skirmish uh, that was fought near Ringo's in the Amwell Township on Hunterdon County in New Jersey. Uh, Cornet Francis Geary was the leader of a company of dragoons. He was shot in an ambush set up by the local militia. Now, after the British forces had captured New York City and the very first part of the, of the, the New York and New Jersey campaign, they had established an outpost throughout central New Jersey. You know, they'd put out, they'd, they'd put up, uh, you know, a company of dragoons or a company of grenadiers at, at different stations at, at different outposts throughout uh, New Jersey, and uh, and they were kind of like there to to keep the peace and keep the 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 British Army uh, represented there. Geary was the son of Admiral Sir Francis Geary, and he was operating out of a station in Pennington uh, when he was killed in the ambush. Uh, his body was taken and concealed and it was later buried in a shallow grave, preventing its recovery by the British troops. Uh, and uh, later on, uh, later on in the 19th century, uh, local historical interest in this event led to the confirmation of his grave's location. Everybody knew where it was. Every, all of the local people knew where it was. But they weren't saying anything because they'd taken the body and they'd hid it. But later in the 19th century, they uh, they finally gave up the location of it, and uh, they put up uh, markers and headstones there at at the site of where he was uh, where Peter was killed. And then back in England, they also put up a I guess a monument to him. Now, I know what you're thinking: that shooting one guy is is not much of a deal. Or he uh, Gary was killed, and there were several wounded in the ambush. But the shooting one guy is not much of a deal, but but it did, because what it did was it taught the British regulars that there was a danger of them leaving these outposts and doing reconnaissance. And because of that, because they stopped going out on reconnaissance patrols, that allowed Washington and his forces to cross the Delaware uh, a, uh, just a, uh, a week and a half later without being detected. Because the news spread very quickly of the forces being attacked by the local militias, that caused, that caused the reconnaissance patrols not to be going out, at least not for any great distances, 
to check on things, that allowed Washington to make it across to Delaware and to begin his attack uh, on uh, Trenton and Princeton uh, and contributed a great deal to that success. Uh, All right, before the Trenton battle, we have the Battle of Ironworks Hill. That's on the 22nd and 23rd. Now, this battle, you may also know it as the Battle of Mount Holly. And uh, this was a a series of minor skirmishes that uh, took place on the 22nd and the 23rd in 1776. Uh, They took place uh, really right outside of Mount Holly, New Jersey. This was between an American force, mostly composed of colonial militia. This was uh, under the command of uh, Colonel Samuel Griffin. And a force of 2,000 Hessians and British regulars under Carl von Donop. Now, you know von, von Donop. He's, gonna, he's the guy that was uh, the commander of the Hessian forces at Trenton. <laughs> now, while the American force of 600, the folks that were under uh, Griffin's uh, command, they were eventually forced from their positions by the, the larger force of 2,000 Hessians. The, uh, the, this action prevented Von Donop from being where he was supposed to be at his, ba- at his base in Bordentown, New Jersey, and uh, in a position to uh, – I just got the names mixed up. Von Donop was supposed to be there with uh, Johan Rall. Johan Rall was commanding the troops at uh, Trenton. Von Donop was supposed to be there uh, in order to bolster his forces, but because of this – uh, the uh, the series of skirmishes that took place on the 22nd and 23rd, Von did not get uh, back to Bordenton in time to be of any assistance to Johann Rahl's troops, the brigade that he kept in Trenton. <clears throat> the uh, uh, Von Rahl's forces were attacked and defeated by Washington after Washington crossed the Delaware on Christmas night, and that was helped by the fact that uh, the uh, the local militia had ambushed Gary and killed him so that the reconnaissance patrols were not sent out uh, uh, in a wide-ranging fact uh, uh, to gain the facts and intelligence, and because Von Donick's guys were kept from reinforcing Rawl. <clears throat> that allowed uh, Washington to cross the Delaware to get his troops to Trenton and attack Trenton successfully. And that happened on December 26, 1776. That was the Battle of Trenton. Now, we've talked about the Battle of Trenton several times before because I told you this is, this is the most important battle, I think, of the American Revolutionary War because it this was the this is where the tide was turned. Uh Washington had been beaten fairly severely and driven out of New York and out of the New Jerseys and he had his force had scattered, the enlistment of most of the troops had come up and they had left and gone home. It looked, for all intents and purposes, like it was done, like the revolution was over. 
you know, they'd given it a good shot, but, you know, it didn't work out. And it was sitting there teetering, balancing on a knife edge, until Washington persuaded his troops to cross the Delaware River on the night of the 25th, on Christmas night. And this is in the middle of a blinding snow and ice storm. They're in cases wading out to the boats, getting on the boats, and going to the other side of the Delaware River. They're having to cross through the ice. You know, they've got the, uh, uh, I can't remember his name now, the the, uh, the boat guy, the commander of the troops and stuff. I'll, I'll think of it in a minute. Anyway, he has his men in the, uh, in the boats taking everybody across. They're having to push the chunks of ice out of the way in order for them to make it. These guys are waiting on the other side, uh, trying to keep from freezing. Once everybody's all assembled around 3 o'clock in the morning, they take off their march to Trenton, and it is ice cold. Now, now we also know that uh, that in the, in the stunning defeat of the Hessians on the 26th, that Washington did not lose a single man. He, he did not lose any men killed in the battle while killing hundreds of the Hessians. But he did lose two men on the march. Two men froze to death on the march there. And this was a group of guys who, when you hear about them leaving a trail of blood on the ice on their march, that is what actually happened. You've got guys who are marching barefoot on the ice and gravel, and their feet are getting torn and bloody and they're actually leaving bloody footprints on their march to take Trenton. So I'd like for you to think about that for a minute. I don't know. that Do we do we have those kind of men anymore? Do we have the kind of men who would, who would in the middle of winter, uh, wearing just some, some short pants and a blanket and a shirt, and they've been standing around in a, in a freezing uh, ice and rainstorm, in many cases with no shoes, and then they march barefoot through the night where two of the men on the march freeze to death. They leave bloody footprints on the ice, <clears throat> and they get to the town, and they successfully attack the town on the day after Christmas and they win. These are guys who have not been paid. They don't have any clothes. They don't have any 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 sleeping gear, no tents. They lost it all uh when they abandoned the fort. They they had uh, only a few minutes notice and they rushed out leaving everything behind. They didn't have any supplies with them. And yet, they marched through the night on ice and snow and attacked the fort. I don't, do we have those kind of folks left? I, 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 I got to tell you, you know, whenever I'm asking myself this, do, do I have that in me? Can I? Because now I'm an old man. 
And uh, maybe in my younger days, I could I could shrug that off. I know plenty of times that I went swimming in January and February and stuff like that. Uh, and I did it with when I was with the Jeep Company Rangers. I remember jumping out of the back of a uh, Chinook helicopter in January, uh, holding on to the edge of a rubber boat, jumping into the water, and uh, and running the missions after that. But i got to tell you, even thinking about it now, I, I cannot see in any way that I could have ever thought it was pleasurable even then. I did it. But I'm thinking about that now. If I were, if I was hungry, I didn't have any food, and and no clothes, no warm clothes, uh, no shoes. Maybe I had a little bit of cloth I could wrap around the worst parts of my feet. And it was raining, and it was snowing and sleeting and freezing. And and I'm going to walk uh, 20-something miles in the middle of the night to attack someplace in the morning. And guess what? The place I'm going to attack, it doesn't have a holiday in or anything. I'm going to have to come back the same way, go back across that river. Just the thought of it right now is 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 just horrific. And they did it. They did it, and they did it victoriously. They paid for the freedoms that you and I enjoy. And uh, like I said, I don't know. I, I'm sure that uh, I'm sure that if I was forced to. Uh, if I didn't have any choice, I guess I would do it. But I'm telling you that is that is horrible. The uh, uh, I know just a uh, a month or two ago, I think it was pretty cold, and I think I went uh, I went out with uh, Red Dot and Alonso. I think that yeah, Red Dot and Alonso, and uh, we were surveying the course for the zombie run, and uh, and it was a fairly cold day. And I was trying to take a short cross, a shortcut across. Uh, it just, it was still raining, and there was the creek was pretty swollen. And I thought I could take a short cross, shortcut across it. And I tried walking on this tree that had fallen over the creek, and lo and behold, uh, oh, I know what it was. I had a broken arm. That's what it was, uh, and it was in a cast. Both, matter of fact, both arms were in a cast. And I had a rifle in one arm, and uh, going across the tree, and I started slipping, and I tried to grab hold of the tree with the cast, but I couldn't because I couldn't close my fingers because I had the cast in the middle. Anyway, I went into the water, and it was about, uh, I guess it was about five and a half feet deep because by the time I hit the bottom of it, uh, I barely had my head out of the water. And uh, this must have been in the beginning of February. And uh, I climbed out, but we were still, uh, they said, well, should we go back? And I'm like, we're just about the halfway point now. We might as well keep on going. So there was only, only had two more miles to go after that. But it was cold, and I was absolutely soaking wet. And I had to laugh because... Because uh, Red Dot, Chuck Leeming, he felt so, I think he felt so sorry for me that he jumped into the water like, uh, like thigh deep, I guess, to, to help, uh, to, to show solidarity with me. But uh, that, 
that to me was horrific then. And I knew that I was going to be coming to a, a house of dry clothes and uh, I could change the clothes and get something hot to eat and get in front of the fireplace. These guys didn't have that. And uh, I know I'm beating this into the dirt, but it's because I think it's important. I think it's very important. Washington won the Battle of Trenton. He went on to repeat that by crossing the river again a few days later, fighting the second Battle of Trenton, being trapped uh, there in Trenton, and in the middle of the night, pulling a a sharp move of keeping all of the uh, fires going and people making noise and stuff, while he pulled all of his forces out and made a in-run to Princeton to attack it the next day, which he did, and he uh, he was victorious in uh, taking Trenton. So uh, my respect for these guys is tremendous. All right, that was on January 2nd, the second Battle of Trenton, as was the Battle of Princeton. The Battle of Millstone was January 20th. The forage war lasted all through the winter, and that was where both sides were going out to forage, and they would meet, and they would they would fight, and the object was to keep the British regulars from gathering it, the, the food that was needed to carry into the winter. They'd be ambushed by local militia and by uh, the Continental Army forces at the time. We got the Battle of Punk Hill on March 8th, the Battle of Downbrook, April 13th, the Battle of Richfield, April 27th. It's also known as the, the Danbury Raid. The Battle of Thomas Creek, May 17th, Meg's Raid, May 24th, the Battle of Short Hills on June 26th, the Siege of Fort Ticonderoga, which ran from the 5th to the 6th of July, the Battle of Herberton, July 7th, the Battle of Fort Anne, July 8th, the Siege of Fort Stanwix, August 2nd to the 23rd, the Battle of Oriskany on August 6th, the 2nd Battle of Matthias, August 13th and 14th, the Battle of Bennington, August 16th, Battle of Staten Island on the 22nd, Battle of Setuaket, April, uh, August 22nd, the first siege of Fort Henry uh, in September, the Battle of Cooch's Bridge, September 3rd, Battle of Brandywine, September 11th, Battle of the Clouds, September 16th, the Battle of Saratoga, September 19th. This is also known as the Battle of Freeman's Farm. The Battle of Powley, September 21st, Siege of Fort Mifflin, September 26th to November 15th, the Battle of Germantown, October 4th, the Battle of Forts Clinton and Montgomery on October 6th, the Battle of Saratoga, this, this is the second battle, which is also called the Battle of Venus Heights, on October 7th, the Battle of Red Bank on October 22nd, which is also known as the Battle of Fort Mercer, the Battle of Gloucester on November 25th, that brings us to the Battle of White Marsh on December 5th uh, through the 8th. <clears throat> now, <clears throat> uh, Okay. Battle of Fort Marsh. <clears throat> uh, 
let's see here. <clears throat> well, also, let me give you a quick uh, reading of the rest of the uh, the events. Uh, on December 30th, 1776, Congress resolved to send commissioners to the courts of Vienna, Spain, Prussia, and Tuscany. Uh, they were trying to get, uh, of course, they're trying to get favor, political favor, which could manifest itself in the forms of uh, of money or supplies, uh, and trying to swing the the courts of public opinion to their side. So they they sent commissioners to those courts to talk to to talk to the folks there. On December fourth, uh, Hal left Philadelphia and took all of the fourteen thousand regulars with him in order to drive Washington from his position at White Marsh, but he but he he didn't attack. He never attacked. Uh, the Battle of White Marsh, or, or it's also called the Battle of Edge Hill was a battle of the Philadelphia campaign, uh, was fought the 5th and 8th in 1777. This is the, uh, this is in the, the area that is surrounding the White Marsh Township, not actually in the town, but in the area surrounding it. And it took the form of several skirmishes, and there was no major battle fought. It was more of a, uh, of actions of skirmish, uh, for how to drive Washington from the positions uh, they had occupied there in uh, uh, in Philadelphia. <clears throat> now, the folks in Philadelphia thought they were going to be, uh, they thought that Philadelphia itself was going to be taken. Of course, the the Congress immediately uh, evacuated uh, after after Washington was defeated. In Germantown, uh, he had the Continental Army encamped in, in various locations throughout Montgomery County, uh, which is just north of the British-occupied Philadelphia. Now, in November, the Americans established an entrenched position approximately 15 miles north of Philadelphia, uh, and from here, Washington. He mainly just watched the troop movements in Philadelphia and evaluated his options. Uh, At this time, uh, at this time, the uh, Hal ended up uh, taking a a large group, uh, pretty a pretty sizable contingent of his troops, uh, sallied out of. Philadelphia it, trying to make one last attempt at destroying Washington and the Continental Army before winter, but after a series of skirmishes that that, that were really neither here nor there, Powell ended up calling off the attack and returned to Philadelphia without ever engaging Washington in any type of a decisive conflict, and uh, that pretty much ended the uh, the year there because after that both uh, both groups went on to their winter encampments. Of course, this is where Washington 
led his troops to the winter quarters at Valley Forge. And uh, Howe returned to Philadelphia and to the city of Philadelphia where his troops were in camp. Now, on December 11th, there was a battle called the Battle of Madison's Fort, and this was uh, uh, in an area surrounding uh, the a, a place where the where the river was fordable in that area, and that's near uh, a town called West Conshohocken, Pennsylvania. And this was another series of, of fairly minor skirmish actions, and uh, and it was part of what they were calling the the what they would end up calling the forage war, and. Uh, the each side was trying to prevent the other from getting supplies, food, and, and uh, other supplies throughout the winter. And uh, the uh, a group of British regulars met uh, a substantial party of the Continental Army who were making their way across the uh, Skilkill River. The Americans ended up retreating to the far side of the river and destroyed the temporary bridge across and uh, the British left the area the next day and they went on foraging, you know, elsewhere around there and uh, and that was the Battle of Madsen's Ford and like I said, it was just it was mainly just a series of, uh, of skirmishes that would end up being called the, the Winter Forge War <clears throat> and by the 18th Washington has uh, brought his troops into quarters of Valley Forge. Uh, and also in December, Charles Lee was released from uh, British uh, capture in exchange for General Prescott. And uh, I don't know, I think that there were a lot of folks who were, uh, who would have been happy if they would have just kept it. Uh, we know that Lee. Uh, while he was in uh, in British custody, was actually counseling them on how best to win the war against the Continentals. Now, I don't think this was done in any uh, in a in a form of malicious treason, but uh, nonetheless, he did it uh, because he was, I think, just mainly because he was arrogant. He wanted to try and tell them how best to defeat the Americans. Uh, all right, we got uh, we still got a a pretty good amount of battles that I want to get to. Uh, I don't think we're going to make it tonight, but I'll give you uh, let me give you the the list of <clears throat> battles in seventeen seventy eight. We got the Battle of Barbados, March 7th, the Battle of Clinton's Bridge, March 18th, the North Channel Naval Duel on April 24th, the Battle of Crooked Billet on May 1st, the Battle of Barren Hill on May 20th, the Mount Hope Bay Raids, May 25th and 30th, the Battle of Cobbleskill on May 30th, the Battle of Monmouth, June 28th, Battle of Alligator Bridge, June 30th, the Wyoming Massacre, July 3rd. Now, this isn't out in Wyoming, folks. The First Battle of Ushant, July 27th. 
the Siege of Pondicherry, August 21st to August 19th. The Battle of Rhode Island, and this is also known as the Battle of Newport or the Quaker Hill Battle. Gray's Raid, September 5th and 17th. The Invasion of Dominica, September 7th. The Siege of Boonesboro, September 7th through the 18th. And that's, of course, Daniel Boone's uh, settlement that was uh, named after Daniel Boone. The Attack on German Flats, September 17th. The Baylor Massacre, September 27th. The Raid on Unadilla and Onaquaga, October 2nd through the 16th. The Battle of Chestnut Neck, October 6th. Little Egg Harbor Massacre, October 16th. Carlton's Raid, October 24th through November 14th. Cherry Valley Massacre, December 11th. And that will take us to the Battle of St. Lucia, which uh, which was uh, actually a, a a naval battle, and it was the naval battle was between uh, the British Royal Navy and the French Navy. But by this time, uh, the French have come in and on our side, and now there's a virtue. Uh, it's a Virtual First World War, and uh, this was fought. This was fought in the West Indies, and uh, was fought between the Royal Navy and the French Navy. <laughs> okay, uh, that's what we're going to stop for tonight, and uh, we'll finish up the rest of the the battles this next week, and. Uh, I want to thank you guys for uh, for calling in. Uh, we got. Uh, is this somebody who wants to get on real quick, Sam? We got about sixty seconds if they do. Uh, I want to thank you guys for tuning in and listening to the show tonight. I hope I didn't uh, bore you with the battles, but I find it very interesting. I, I, I love reading about history and hearing about history, and I hope that uh, I hope that. Uh, that you guys find it interesting. Uh, if not, tell me that you don't. I won't do it. But uh, I really enjoy uh, learning about the battles that uh, help to form the nation that we now live in. Okay, guys, that's uh, that's going to do it for uh, for this edition of Rifleman Radio Show. And uh, I hope you guys will turn in uh, this coming Thursday. 7 p.m. Central uh, Time, and we'll see you then. Until then, God bless and keep you all, and uh, we'll see you uh, next week.
Dragging who we meet, you call this liberty. 